The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear son, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome back from our break. We had three weeks off. Yes, we had our three-week break. We did, which is always rejuvenating and restorative. And I also love listeners. Thank you so much for posting on social media and sending us emails saying, where are you? Where's my new new episode of Dear Sugars? It's an honor that so many of you listen. And that is why I say with some sorrow and heartbreak. Yes. That this is going to be our final season of this podcast. Mm -hmm. And we're ending the show not because it hasn't been a fabulous experience. It has been. Yes. But we really both have all kinds of things to do in the world and time is limited. We both went into this knowing that there's a certain limit on how many times you can weigh in on any number of the troubles we as humans have. We both have that next book to write. We're really, as we'll talk more deeply about on the finale episode, I think of this as a stepping away to do other kinds of work that sit alongside the kind of work we've been doing on the podcast. Yes. And on the other side of that, we have chosen with real great care uh, episodes that make the best use of the limited time that we have to do this work, including an amazing live show. We want to talk about emotional abuse. We want to talk about love and money and how they interact and undermine, and also a two-part series on moving on, which is something that comes up so frequently. Which we thought was topical, since we will be moving on after this season. Yes, that's right. But there's so much to come between now and then. That's right. So one of the great things about having made this podcast, is how we get to be in conversation with people from really all over the world yep. and people of all different ages. And and that's going to come up today because the two letters we've chosen are from teenagers. Both yeah. of our letter writers are 16 years old. And a special guest who I think a will really be... A really exciting guest. Who yes. I, I, I'm not even going to say yet. But not going to spill the beans. Because no. she's so exciting. Yes. Will you read the first letter, Steve? I shall. Dear Sugars... I'm a 16-year-old girl, and I am struggling with feeling bitterness toward my parents. My father is a pastor, and I've grown up in the church. My siblings and I were homeschooled to keep us on the right spiritual path. I've never been involved in any sort of club or sport where I could make friends. My whole life has been homeschool and church. That's all. In elementary school, I took classes with 20 or so other homeschoolers. Class met only once a week. Aside from church on Sunday, that one day of class per week was the only day I was consistently out of the house. In middle school, my homeschool group shrunk to an even smaller bunch. Because I did most of my schoolwork at home, I had few opportunities to learn how to be social and make friends. I became really shy, and I lost confidence. Things got worse when a young family member of mine was diagnosed with cancer. 
On top of the stress from my schoolwork and the isolation I was feeling, I was also afraid for my friend and grieving. I became kind of depressed during my preteen years. My parents noticed something was wrong, but they didn't do anything. They told me I was acting different, and they asked me if I was okay. I said I was fine, and they said they thought I was lying, but we never talked about it again. By the time I was in high school, I felt less sad and more stable, but I hated going to class, and I did everything I could to avoid it, usually with no success. I was too shy to speak in class or eat lunch with the other students, even though by then there were only four other students in my homeschool group. Now I'm 16 and all of my peers have graduated. I only leave the house a few times a week. That shyness that I used to feel is now accompanied by muscle tension, heart palpitations, dizziness, and panic around people I used to be close with, including family members. It's really isolating to feel like I'm unable to be myself around others. I have trouble doing simple things like walking, talking, and moving in public without my heart fluttering and feeling like everyone else is watching me. Sometimes, during simple social interactions, my mind goes blank and I stumble over my words. Other times, I have great conversations, but I'll replay them in my head until I start feeling like I said all the wrong things. I'm super lonely, but it's really hard to make meaningful connections. Now I decline invitations because of my social anxiety. I decide not to go to parties when I remember how nervous I get. When I do go out, it often ends badly because I usually embarrass myself. Even when I don't embarrass myself, going out can be more isolating than staying home. The main place I have a chance to meet people is church. I find myself waiting for Sunday to arrive so I can go to church and be around people. But usually, I'm too nervous to start conversations or maintain them. Then, when I leave church, I regret not speaking to anyone, and I become even more lonely. Then, I spend the week feeling isolated, waiting for Sunday all over again. I don't know if they deserve this, but I wholeheartedly blame my parents for my anxiety. They control so much of my life, I'm with them almost constantly. I'm not allowed to do what normal teens are allowed to do, things like wear makeup and have boyfriends. My parents want me to live in a safe bubble, but I want to be free and independent. I want to do things like get a job, take college classes, volunteer, but I don't think I can. It also bothers me that my parents have never given me any guidance. I would be less upset if they had aspirations for me, but they don't. Their control is aimless. It's like they keep me on a leash only for the sake of it. After learning that most homeschoolers are involved in things like clubs and sports, I felt more angry toward my parents. I don't know how they thought I'd learn social skills. Now it's too late. I already have social anxiety. It's going to be hard to do those types of things now, and I don't know where to start. I'm graduating soon, and I feel even more lost. I have no idea what I'm going to do when I have to go to college. The idea scares me more than anything. Sugars, what should my next step be? How do I function with this persistent social anxiety? Is there a way for me to become independent when my anxiety is holding me back? Is the way I feel toward my parents justified? Signed, Bitterly Lonely. Wow. This hmm. letter, you know, it's, it's two things, Steve. Yeah. It breaks my heart, Bitterly Lonely, 
to read about your isolation and your anxiety and your fear. It makes me incredibly hopeful when I think about what I truly believe is ahead for you. Yeah. It's freedom. You say, now it's too late. It's not. Right. It's only just begun. Right. And I think that this is the most powerful wisdom that age can give a person, and that is perspective. And right now, bitterly lonely, you have none. Most 16-year-olds have very little perspective. They have the world they grew up in. And yours is even smaller because you grew up in such an isolating world. And, you know, I want to say it's not the homeschooling so much that kept you isolated. As you note, it's the way that your parents homeschooled you. Their goal was actually to keep you from the world, to keep you on the quote-unquote right spiritual path, which was in line with their agenda for you, their values and their ideals. And, you know, every parent does that to some extent. Your parents did it to an extreme extent. Yeah. And the consequence of that is that you haven't had experiences in the world at large. But the good news is that, first of all, a lot of 16-year-olds have had a very limited view. A lot of 16-year-olds feel anxious about what's going to happen when they step away from home. And a lot of 16-year-olds feel shy and scared and embarrassed about how to gain independence and grow up. So you're not as isolated as you think you are, even though there are aspects to your isolation that are very, very real. Yeah. I found your letter bitterly lonely. I mean, I don't want this to sound wrong. I found it inspiring. Right. For a person your age, you're very clear-eyed about what your experience has been and why you found the way that your parents have raised you isolating And you talk about, is the way I feel toward my parents justified? It is. But it's also important that you shift the way that you think about yourself. And the one part of your letter that I would ask you to take a look at a second time is this passage. My parents noticed something was wrong, but they didn't do anything. They told me I was acting different, and they asked me if I was okay. I said I was fine, and they said they thought I was lying, but we never talked about it again. So there's two things that are happening. It's both that you spend a tremendous amount of time with your parents, but that you lack the trust to confide in them how you feel. And that's the difficulty is they were trying to get you, it sounds to me, like they were trying to get you to open up about what they perceived as you're feeling down. And you have to be able to develop the trust within yourself to say to them some of what you said to us, I feel isolated. I feel frustrated by the ways in which, for motives that might have been good, you've raised me in a way that doesn't make me feel equipped to deal with the world of social discourse and that I'm feeling it in my body. And you need to be able to say to them, no, I'm not okay. Yeah, and I I think that's good advice, Steve, but I want to also offer a slightly different perspective when it comes to what Bitterly Lonely might do when it comes to her parents. What I would say is it's okay to blame your parents for your problems when you're a teenager. I mean, I think that that's a very natural and normal progression. And what happens at this age that you're at is is you do start to need to rely more on yourself when it comes to making decisions about where you'll go next. This conversation that you have with your parents about how you feel, I don't think it's a bad idea. But I don't think uh, that what you do next depends on 
whether your parents are supportive or not, or right. it depends on whether your parents give you permission or not. You are 16, so you have to have some kinds of permission, but it sounds like you're college-bound soon, and soon you'll be 18. And then no matter what your parents think, no matter what your parents hope you'll do or not do, is beside the point, because you get to have your own life. And the reason that I felt that same sense of inspiration and hope that you know, that both the both of us are saying we felt at this letter is that that what is ahead is your liberation. We all, in some ways, break free from our childhoods and make our lives on our own, whether we had incredibly supportive, healthy families or incredibly unsupportive, dysfunctional families. We have to ultimately make our own path. And you'll be grappling with your parents all your life. You'll be reckoning with the way they raised you. But what I'm trying to say is you don't need their permission anymore to be an independent person. Right. When I read your letter, Bitterly Lonely, the book that came to mind that you just, I hope will just immediately rush out and buy or get on your iPad and and buy an electronic copy or whatnot, a memoir called Educated by Tara Westover. Mm -hmm. Have you read this book, Steve? Mm -hmm. She grew up in rural Idaho. She was homeschooled, but really not not schooled much. Uh, Her formal education began at 17, she went on to get a PhD, and she writes very deeply about growing up in a family that is not so unlike yours, bitterly lonely, where you know they were really physically isolated and and isolated because of their values and ideals. And Tara Westover has gone on to have a big life, right? You know, so I I think that that a lot of your ability to gain some confidence in these situations is to be a lot easier on yourself, but really lonely. Many of the fears and anxieties we have are perceived only by us, not by others. Right. And that what you're doing is there's a phrase, you know, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. You think you're in a room with all these people who have all these social skills and you're the awkward one. Right. But that's not true. Right. So maybe that first step is next time you're in a social environment, Try to push forward even if you feel scared to do yeah. so. Try to speak even if you feel like you can't. Ask a question even if you're afraid that it's a dumb one. Right. What you want to be able to do is move through the world in a way that makes your world larger. As you say, be free and independent. And that's not going to happen until you really cut the wires on that internalized sense of isolation. And some of that might involve speaking more honestly with your parents. And some of it might also involve speaking to other people in your church group. And some of it might involve speaking to a counselor or to a therapist. But I think it's better than labeling yourself socially anxious and sort of sticking that label on yourself. You need to be able to speak the contents of your heart. And it's so obvious to both of us that you're capable of that Mm -hmm. because your letter is incredibly eloquent about the dimensions of your circumstance. Yeah. Another thing is you mentioned clubs and sports a few times. You're you're angry at your parents for not signing you up for those things. Well, you're 16 now. Yep. Maybe that's what you say. Instead of having the deep, complicated question in which you tell your parents you're mad at them about the way they've schooled you and raised you, you just say to them, hey, I want to join this club. Right. And see what they say about that. One of the things that's great about joining a club or a sport or something is that you don't have to sit there in a room and look at each other and make conversation. You're doing something together. The bonds are formed over time by shared uh, activities and, and shared interests. And so I do encourage you as this kind of stepping stone between this isolated homeschooling you've had and college, see if you can find some organized activities that you can attend and be part of a group. 
That's how you connect with other people. You intentionally make a decision to connect. Yeah, you find your tribe. Those little tribes are out there, and they exist, in fact, because lots of people want to connect intensely, and they don't just want to be thrown in the middle of the high school dance. Yeah. And I want you also to remember that right now, everything you know is the life you've had. And that is true of every 16-year-old, mm-hmm. right? And one of the glorious things about growing up and crossing that line into adulthood, which is really not a line, but a, but a journey, a process, is that you become who you are in an entirely new environment, if you wish. You don't have to stay at home. right? And this is about deciding to be brave enough to put yourself out there and to take opportunities to follow the trail where it leads you, to to really find who you are, not based on how your parents choose to define you, right? but based on how you choose to define and mold yourself. I always think, Cheryl, I think I probably said this to you 7,000 times, but every great story, I'm thinking about literary stories, yeah. begins with a protagonist, in this case a heroine, who's a little bit too smart for her circumstances, who knows that she wants a bigger life. I'm thinking of Jane Eyre, for instance, right? And I sense that in you, Bitterly Lonely. You know that you want a bigger life. Mm -hmm. You want a life where you can individuate from your parents and move through the world, not with, you know, super confidence, but just to feel comfortable in your skin moving through the world. And it's completely apparent to me, it's obvious to me that you're going to find that. Yeah. You know, the stuff about whether your parents are to blame or not, the moment right now is not about doing that reckoning with your parents. It's doing that reckoning with yourself. You're 16. It's time for you to take those steps. So open the door and walk out. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. So, Steve, back when I was writing the Dear Sugar column on the rumpus, I was writing it anonymously, but I had a Twitter feed, you know, under sugar. Mm -hmm. And every week when the column went up, there would be all this activity on social media and especially Twitter and people would comment and retweet. And 
one week, I noticed quite a storm of activity and excitement. <laughs> a sugar storm. <laughs> a sugar storm. And it was all of these people saying, oh my gosh, sugar, Shirley Manson has tweeted about you. What? what? She tweeted a link to the column and said some kind words, and I was so thrilled. And of course, Shirley Manson is the lead vocalist of the alternative rock band Garbage, who I love and have loved for a long time. So it was absolutely a thrill. And so we're going to talk to her today. Yes. Isn't that great? That's the reveal. Awesome. I know. So Garbage's 1998 album, version 2.0, top charts all over the world and garnered multiple Grammy Award nominations, including Album of the Year. Garbage went on to release four more albums, Beautiful Garbage, Bleed Like Me, Not Your Kind of People, and Strange Little Birds. This year, Garbage released a special 20th anniversary edition of their legendary second album, version 2.0. Garbage has sold over 17 million albums worldwide and performed in over 35 countries. I just saw them perform last year when they came to Portland. Very exciting. Let's give her a call. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to Unlimited Conferencing. (laughs) Yeah. Hi. Hi. Is this this Shirley? This is Shirley. Hi, Shirley. It's Cheryl. (laughs) So nice to hear your voice. (laughs) It's lovely to hear yours, too. Oh, thank you. I have Steve Almond with me here. Hi, Shirley. Hi, Steve Almond. Yes. Wow. So formal. Yes. Good. (laughs) So I thought of you when we were contemplating these letters because I feel like you have been really such an icon and an idol and such an important figure for so many teenagers around the world and frankly, adults too, who feel like they're a little bit on the outside, a little outside of uh, the norm. <laughs> yes. You get that a lot? <laughs> I think she might, she might be aware. <laughs> you might be aware of that. So, you know, what I'd love to hear from you is a little bit about where you came from, what your story is, and, and your experience with feeling and being outside. Well, I grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is, you know, a small island, basically. And I was one of three children. And I had a insanely academic father who pushed his children pretty hard. And I was the middle kid and I felt like I didn't really have an identity. So I was always fighting sort of for myself in my mind to be heard, to be seen, to be recognised. And I struggled with that. Um, I was red haired. I was freckled. I was very pale. And I was also very smart. And that sort of cast me outside of what I considered to be the sort of mainstream popular kids. You know, I was always on the outside sort of looking and feeling like a freak. And to be honest, that hasn't really changed that much. (laughs) Um, I still feel like I'm a little out of sorts. You know, I'm a one woman in an all-male band. They're a lot older than me. I'm a lot younger than them. They're American. I'm Scottish. So I've just been an outsider my entire life. And actually, the older I get, the more comfortable I feel in that position. But when I was young, it was torturous. Right. What was happening for you as a teenager? Oof. Oh, my God. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I was bullied, physically bullied by a large, very tough girl in my first couple of years at at high school. And that made me very self-conscious and fearful. 
And I also became very self-conscious about my body. I mean, I think so many of us do when we go through puberty, but, you know, who cares about everyone else, right? right. You only think about yourself. And, <laughs> and I just felt really self-conscious about my body. And as a result, I didn't want to participate in school sports. And as a result, I became a bit of an outcast. You know, when you don't participate in group activities... Yeah. You, you, you know, you sort of self-sabotage yourself. And uh, I just got more and more sort of introverted. I I, um, I was a cutter. I started to self-harm. And when I first talked about that, that was considered pretty shocking because, you know, when I emerged in the mid-90s, nobody talked about that kind of stuff. So, Shirley, can you travel back to the moment or a moment where you really felt viscerally that you were on the outside looking in? I mean, my familial place was the first time I felt really aware of being an outsider. My dad took us to a local photographer's and he wanted the family photographed as a unit. And there was a, you know, a little fake sort of set up in front of the lights. There was a couch and a curtain and I think a lamp. And the photographer took my mum and my dad and my two sisters and put everyone on a couch and then took me and I was placed behind everybody on the couch. And in that moment, I was thinking to myself, oh, they're putting me at the back because they're ashamed of me Mm. because I'm not pretty and I'm not, you know, charming like my sisters. And that was a huge moment for me. Now, it's become a bit of a family joke because I have that photograph now in my kitchen in Scotland. (laughs) And (laughs) it's the moment for me when things started to go awry. And so it's an important photograph for me and my family who find it highly amusing that I was so riddled with with doubt and, and feeling like I didn't fit in. And actually it was... The reason I was put at the back was because I was tall, but I didn't know that. Right. So, you didn't. You had a different perception yeah, in that moment. Is, yeah, ex- exactly. And and that taught me a lesson about perception and feelings that they mm-hmm. actually are not related to reality most of the time. Yes. So we have a letter that has some resonance with that story you just told. I'm going to read it. Dear Sugars, five years ago when I was in fifth grade, I was diagnosed with cancer. It was a hard time in my life, but I pulled through successfully. I got straight A's on all of my report cards, even though I had to spend days sitting in a chair with a needle, administering medicine to a porticath in my chest. I was also able to find a deeper connection with God and develop a better understanding of the complexities of the world around me. Socially, however, I wasn't doing great. I'm a relatively quiet kid, but especially in that time after I was declared cancer-free and had to go back to school, I was completely introverted. I eventually found comfort in a group of girls who were social outcasts like myself, each with their own story. However, being the black, chubby Christian girl with a recent history of trauma in a friend group of white, atheist, and mostly average-sized girls, I was more of an outcast than the others, and that led to awful arguments and a nasty breakup. Once again, I was a loner. Soon after, I met another friend. She too had recently gone through a breakup and felt out of place. This girl was imperfectly perfect all over. She was small, had a beautifully crooked smile, wore thick-rimmed glasses, and always wore sweats. She was average and lost, just like me, and we instantly became friends. That was three years ago. 
now we're freshmen in high school, and she's had a radical makeover. She wears sexier clothing, does her makeup exceptionally well, smiles straighter, plays sports, and has an eye-catching Instagram page. She's become popular. Boys look at her and say, damn, I want that. As for me, aside from some improvement of my makeup skills and fashion sense, I haven't changed much, though my grades are no longer straight A's. I remain short and stout. I look like a black monster when I'm not wearing makeup. Whenever I'm around her, I feel worthless and ugly, like I'm the before and she's the after. I believe this has caused a disconnection between the two of us. It's almost as if she looks at me and sees the awkward girl she was in middle school that she's now desperately trying to move away from. I've decided time and time again that I want to break up with her so that my feelings of guilt and disappointment will end or at least be silenced for a while. But each time, I talk myself out of it. We've been friends for so long. She makes me look prettier and seem more popular when she's around me. Plus, we're in the same classes, so it would be awkward if we weren't friends. Sugars, I want to focus on my own healing while having friends who are there when I need them. I want them to always be my support system, no matter what, to laugh with me, to cry with me, to engage in deep conversation about the most mundane things, to give me positive affirmations when I'm sick or angry or afraid, but most importantly, to love me for who I am, no matter what changes we go through. I know these values don't exist in the relationship I have with this girl, but I just don't know how to let go. Please help me. Signed, Stuck in My Own Jigsaw Puzzle. Mm. So, you know, when I said, Shirley, I felt like this letter had some resonance with what you just said. I really, I was thinking about this piece of the letter where she says about her friend, I, I feel worthless and ugly when I'm around her. Like, I'm the before and she's the after. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading this letter, I just think in some funny way, um, you know, you're stuck in my own jigsaw puzzle. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> Things are not as bad as you perceive them to be currently. Um, I feel like this is part and parcel of growing up for mm-hmm. almost everybody. Generally speaking, I think when you're young, you're taught to compare yourself against others. And of course, as you get older and older, you realise how futile that practice is. And, you know, I can think of two examples in my own life where I compared myself First of all, when I was at school with a, with one of my peers who I was just, you know, practically in love with and felt that I fell short of the mark every time I looked at her and every time I considered her. And then actually later on in my career as a musician, I had attained some success and found myself comparing myself against my peers. So what I mean by that is my record company would say, yeah, you know, you're selling 25,000 records a week in North America. And I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Ooh. And then they'd say, however, Gwen Stefani and Alanis Morissette are each selling, you know, 50,000 <laughs> records a week. And, you know, I immediately felt deflated. Now, it's only as I've, I've sort of in my 50s that I realize how sick this is, how sick our society is and how sick expectations of us are. And I think this is what Stuck in My Own Jigsaw Puzzle is experiencing like right now is this just normal realization of self inside the mad world that we find ourselves in. Yeah. You know, what I felt in reading this letter was that you're an unbelievably strong person. 
when you were in fifth grade, you were diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And not only did you survive that, and not only did you get straight A's while you had a portacath in your chest, but you also, and this is the part that kind of astonishes me, you found a deeper connection with God and developed a better understanding of the complexities of the world around you. And I can't do that work at age 51. <laughs> As an adult. With decent health, right? I mean, to go through such an experience makes you in a certain way precocious. That is, you know, most of your peers have not struggled so deeply to save their own lives and to understand the world around them. And in a way, you're encountering, and this is also important to acknowledge, you're African-American, you're chubby, you're Christian, and you're trying to fit into a world that is bigoted against all three of those things, and especially in the world uh, of, of teenagers who can be pretty merciless about othering people. And what I, I lament in your letter, and it's really the thing that, that kind of killed me, is the line, um, I look like a black monster when I'm not wearing makeup. The world is trying to make you feel that way. Mm-hmm. And it, it really landed with me emotionally when I read that line and thought, no, you don't understand. You've survived something that most people either don't survive or don't survive with the kind of grace and strength that you've demonstrated. And the problem is with the world. The world is not recognizing you as a brave survivor, as a person who's wise beyond your years, as a person who's having to move through a world that is actively bigoted against you, and not because the world is smart or has good judgment about you, but because the world is cruel and inconsiderate and insecure. And you've got your values just right. You should be looking for people who will love you as you are. You're already at the point where you're saying rightly, I want the measure of my worth to be that people recognize that my insides are beautiful and they're focused on the content of my character. And the, the trick is that you have to come to believe that yourself and recognize your strength and power and beauty. And that's when people who recognize that come into your life. But, you know, it's funny, Steve, because I sort of perceive this letter in a slightly different way. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not trying to minimize stuck in my own jigsaw puzzles feelings in any way, shape or form. But at the same time, I want to remind them that you know, your feelings about the way you look, particularly when you're young, are not necessarily real. And neither are your feelings of how you're being perceived by your peer group are necessarily real. They Mm -hmm. feel real, but often they can just be the way you have chosen to interpret them. Just because you may feel that you look like a monster does not mean (laughs) that you actively look like a monster. It's difficult when you're young to love your face, love your body, body love yourself. Yeah, yeah um, it's almost impossible. Yeah, so it's almost impossible. And I, again, as, as a successful singer, I have, you know, been on the front cover of many magazines all over the world. And I see these magazines now and there I am looking absolutely gorgeous. And I remember distinctly when I was young those photo sessions, locking myself in bathrooms, bursting into tears, feeling revolting, feeling ugly, feeling fat. And then I look at the photographs now and I'm like, I didn't have an ounce of fat on me. I was gorgeous. I was interesting looking, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I guess I just, I want to focus actually on, on your final paragraph, which to me in your letter shows me that you actually have all 
and everything you need already. You you have got it all figured out. You just need to take your ball of string and untangle it because you have clarity and and you yeah. know what you need. Yeah. No, and I I just want to say, Shirley, this is exactly my read of it. And one of the things that I really think we should address, you ask us directly, I've decided that it's time to break up with her. You want these feelings of guilt and disappointment to end. And I think that we should uh, kind of take that apart a bit. I don't know that the disconnect in your friend is really caused because she really is pushing you away. In some ways, Jigsaw, you may be your own insecurity projecting onto her and you've decided she's different. And I guess the the finer point here is Jigsaw Puzzle, maybe you're the one distancing yourself because you feel threatened by your friend's new look. And I know that feeling. I mean, I've been on both ends of that. One experience I had about 10 years ago, so I was about 40, I reconnected with a bunch of the girls I went to high school with. And I grew up in this little tiny town in northern Minnesota. And I sort of made a different choice in my teen years. I, I, I decided the way I could most find love was not to move to the outside, but to try to move to the inside and pretend that I belonged there. Okay, right. so I was the cheerleader. I was the homecoming queen. I was the girlfriend of the captain of the football team. I was the kid who didn't have social anxiety. I was the kid who felt like I belonged. And guess what? It was all a facade. I was tormented every day uh, about feeling like I was fat. I had, you know, I starved myself skinny. I felt miserable and insecure. And I went back, you know, and talked to all these women who I'd gone to high school with. And we all, for the first time in our lives, talked about who we actually were. Right. And it was so crazy because it was as if it was we were all actors in a play. And I was the one who played the homecoming queen. You know, and then there was the girl who played the one who hung out behind the school and smoked cigarettes and had that a bad reputation, right? That was surely right. <laughs> that was you, but but we're sisters. Yeah. Actually, the way we felt inside was so much more aligned than it seemed. And so before leaping to, to, to sever the relationship, I would encourage you to think about having a heart-to-heart talk with her. You don't mention if you've done that. You only mention this kind of very vague sense of disconnect based on her personal appearance and your your perceptions of your own personal appearance. And I would imagine, Jigsaw Puzzle, that your friend actually has many of the very same feelings about herself and her physical appearance as you do about yourself and your physical appearance. And it kind of makes my heart sick <laughs> to, to think that that would be the thing that divides you. You see, I'm I'm reading this differently t- from you, Cheryl, although I agree with so much of what you're saying. To me, coming to the final paragraph, which I keep going back to, I feel like it sounds to me that Stuck in My Own Jigsaw Puzzle actually has made a decision in a funny way, but yeah. is reluctant to take ownership over this decision on her yeah. part. And mm-hmm. I think that is often a thing that young women are loath to do, is actually take up space in the world and say, actually, I don't like this. I don't want it. I've changed my mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is a challenge that all of us as human beings face multiple times in our life. How do we extricate ourselves from from situations that are tricky? And I would 
encourage them to have faith in knowing what's right for themselves, you know, which is so hard. Yeah. And, you know, I I can think of an example very, very recently. You know, I'm 51 and a couple of years ago, I had a girlfriend in my life who I loved with a passion and we had traveled a lot together. We had done a lot of creative endeavors together. But there was also something strange about the relationship in that there was a lot of passive aggressive unpleasantness that caused us both upset. We both would upset each other. And it took us years and years to untangle, but we eventually did. And we don't really see each other anymore. I love her. I love her from afar. I always will. And if she ever needed something from me, I would be the first to be there for her. However, our friendship is just not compatible. And sometimes you just have to make these really tough decisions in your life about when you're in their company, if you don't feel good in your gut, then something has to change. And either you change or you move away from the relationship because you have no control over the other person. Yeah. I'd also love to know more about Jigsaw Puzzle's, you know, social peer group. I mean, if you are the yeah. only black kid in your school, you know, in a, in a culture that is attempting to sort of teach black kids that they're not somehow in the same mold as a white kid, that can also be really distressing and really alienating and upsetting. And uh, I would urge you to find on social media, you know, social media is a beast, but it can also provide an incredible platform for us to find our own people, Yeah, to yep. find support in, you know, being who we are, you know, finding like minds, like thinkers, and I think on a deep level, you know this yourself already. It's like you're around people who are not necessarily feeding you in the yeah. way that yeah. you deserve to be fed. Um, I will say one thing, which is, I'm sorry that you're no longer getting straight A's. I hope that doesn't mean, <laughs> well, no, I, I mean that because I hope that doesn't mean that you're um, squandering what is so apparent from this letter, which is your remarkable intellect. You're really smart. And one place where I found solace, in, you know, feeling awkward in teenage years is in my mind and other people who were, um, you know, interested in the world of the mind and, and reading and books. That was like, I, I'm going to not surprise anybody by announcing I was not the prom king. Uh, <laughs> Are you guys going to pick on me because I was the homecoming queen? Everybody I know Everybody hates the homecoming queen I know. Show. It's always a hard thing to say because people are so mean to me about it. Shirley, are you still my friend? Did you know I was the homecoming queen? No, but you see, this is this speaks to the sickness in my mind is I love you all the more because you were the homecoming queen. (laughs) I mean, that's how sick I am. (laughs) Well, you know, you know, we and I love you all the more because you were the girl smoking cigarettes out behind. (laughs) That's right. You guys each wanted to be the other one. All right. Maybe not. Yeah. Okay. So Jigsaw Puzzle, you know, I think... What we did is what we often do, I think, on this show, is instead of uh, telling you exactly what to do, we made things more complicated. But I hope we help make things more clarifying, too. And the big one is, I think Shirley said it best, is there you have the clarity. You already know. Trust yourself. And trust yourself to make connections and nurture bonds that make you feel good about who you are. And th- those that you let go, try to do it with love. Yeah. So Shirley, thank you so much. I just love and adore you and I'm just thrilled we got your voice on the show. Thank you guys so much. And I wish Jigsaw Puzzle the, the most luck of all and uh, I, I think we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Hi, listeners. Join us next week for another Rapid Fire episode. We'll read letters from people who are having trouble with money and love. Talk to you then. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. You know what? We forgot to make sure that she was going to get backstage passes whenever garbage appears in her town. That was a big error. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll look into that. that. Work on that. Our managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our editor is Paige Cowett. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. I kind of feel like Lisa Tobin was definitely a garbage fan. Oh, we know it. Like without a doubt. Our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded the show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon, with our engineer, Josh Millman. Our mix engineer is Eddie Cooper. Our theme music is by Wonderlay, with vocals by Liz Weiss. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. Stay.